Hello, lovely people. How are you doing? Well, today I'm going to introduce you to the marvelous Scott Pack. And there's a wonderful David Bowie clip where he says he, you know, he thinks everyone produces their best work when they're just slightly out of their depth. Yeah, if you're not a little bit scared, you're unlikely to be massively creative. Now, for next chapters, we all need someone in our corner, and Scott Pack has definitely been in mine. He's my brilliant book editor who has a lot of patience. But Scott started working in the record industry before he worked in publishing. He went on to be the head buyer at Waterstones before becoming a senior editor at HarperCollins. So it's fair to say when it comes to books, well, Scott does know what he's talking about. He's also worked with independent publishers, written his own books, tips from a publisher, and now one all about cats in literature. And he regularly hosts Guardian masterclasses. But... Like all good stories, there's an extra twist. On top of all of this, Scott writes questions for Mastermind. Oh yes, I've started, so I've finished. These, by the way, are the sorts of puns Scott definitely does not like to see in his books. Scott speaks openly about the publishing industry, what you really need to do if you do want to become an author, and why he's now an expert on Taylor Swift. He's funny, kind, and so generous with all his wisdoms. I love working with Scott and I'm so excited to now introduce him to you. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter or at the very least, you just enjoy the conversation. So here he is. Scott Pack. Scott Pack, welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. I am delighted to have you with me. This is such a change because normally the shoe is on the other foot. Uh, yes, shoes and feet. They are, uh, that's a good analogy. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> well, the thing is, Scott, my um, the lovely listeners and also the lovely people who join my mailing list know about my, I call you my very lovely book editor, which to be fair, you are, but we have conversations where I can't always describe them exactly as lovely, although they are honest. And for this, I thank you. Um, constructive criticism, I think, is the phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And yes, thick skin is another one that comes to mind, but it's good. So thank you. It's a, I'm so happy to share your story because you've helped me so much. So let's begin. So you grew up in Essex uh, and you grew up on Canvey Island. That, that's true. There's a note of incredulity in your voice there. Yeah. Do you know, I didn't realise that. I absolutely didn't realise that. From So you say you had a working class upbringing, but you had parents who worked really hard and you just didn't want for anything. Yeah, my, yeah my, my parents, like a lot of parents, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s and, like, and you know, it wasn't a great time, sort of economically and um, <clears throat> socially. I think there was an awful lot of problems in the country. Uh, sort of sounds like I'm describing today, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, all, so, all, sorts, of, all sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> and my, you know, I, you know, I come from pretty, you know, pretty working class stock. Um, but as with a lot of people who I think were, were, were in the same position to me you know their parents just worked bloody hard to make sure that their kids didn't go without and um so so yeah i was you know really well looked after and um and just me and my sister 
and and yeah it was you know the family just they put family first and that's what i think a lot of people a lot of people in it with all sorts of backgrounds do mm. but um but i think particularly with you know so my my mum's family came down from glasgow when she was a baby and and lived in london my dad was also in, in the east of london <clears throat> they both left school i think at probably 15 or so mm. yeah they were, and they had me very young so like i think I think my mum was probably like 21 when she had me or something like that. Mm. Um, so um, maybe 22, 23, but they're, they're a pretty young, uh, young family and just working really hard to, to make ends meet. Um, but we, you know, I wouldn't, looking back, because I know what jobs they did and what, you know, what they did to make ends meet, I realised that it would have been really hard for them mm. at various stages. But at the time, no idea about that whatsoever, because, you know, there was food on the table and we lived in a nice house and, you know, I had, a, you know, board games to play and whatever it might be. So I, but I know now, now I'm older and have kids myself and know how the world works. I realise the sort of sacrifices they would have made um, to, to make sure that was the case. So I'm eternally grateful for that. And, yeah. uh, you know, I had a nice, you know, I had a nice childhood and nothing remarkable happened. Nothing bad happened. I can't write a misery memoir based on my terrible childhood. It was all fine. It was all absolutely fine. Sounds idyllic. I'm sure many people listening will think the same. But what did they do for their job, Scott? So my dad worked in the print trade. Mm. Uh, and it's a really interesting time as well. I mean, looking back, so um, uh, he was what they call a scanner operator, but he did all sorts of jobs in the print trade. And occasionally as a kid, he'd take me, like, he had to go into work on a Saturday to pick something up or something. And he'd take me in and... I just remember the whole place smelling of ink <laughs> and just lots of weird things around. Um, I have a distinct me memory of walking through the, the shop floor and him saying, don't look at the walls. Because, of course, all the men, because it was only men there, had put all the page three, cut out page three models and stuck them on the wall. And I was like six or seven or something. So, of course, the first thing I did is looked at the wall and like boobies. So, yeah. um um, and my mum did various jobs. I remember her working for a youth centre, but she, I mean, she was what you'd call a homemaker, but but I think did a few bits and pieces to make ends meet. So she worked for a youth centre. Um, and then as we got older, so once we, you know, could look, sort of, you know, look after ourselves a bit, then I, as she did other jobs, she did, um, as I remember, she was like regional manager for one of those companies that delivers like samples through your door. Like if you ever get like wow. a sample a shampoo yeah. through your door or something like that, mm. she used to do that. That was probably um, quite, quite, you know, advanced in those days as well. Yeah, I mean, that would have been late 80s, I think, maybe a mid 80s, something like that. But yeah, so my dad was my dad was the was the main sort of full time worker and he worked in print pretty much all of his life, mm. to be honest. Mm. So just going back to what you said, my dad uh, had uh, he worked well, he had an engraving company and, and I used to go in there and I you just brought back a memory about the don't look at the wall because yeah, for a long exactly, time yeah. I didn't look at the wall. I, you know, I listened and then one day I did and crikey, you know. Anyway, so, um, so, but you, uh, you loved books and you said your dad was a great reader and so you enjoyed books, but you said at school, you found school pretty easy, but you sort of, you sort of just cruised along really. Yeah, I was one of those annoying shoots. So effectively, if you give me a book on anything, I'm fine. Yeah, But teachers who are wonderful individuals in the main, <clears throat> they really like to teach. That's what they like to do. Mm. Um, whereas I'm, I'm quite a sort of, if you just give me the book, I'll go away and read the book. And then you can ask me any questions you want about the book and I'll answer them. And that was my approach to learning. Um, but of course, that doesn't necessarily go down well with teachers who have done their lesson plans. And um, I have complete sympathy with them now, of course. 
so yeah i mean i was pretty bright i read a lot of books but also i had a fairly pragmatic approach to learning so i knew which subjects i wouldn't use mm, so clever. once and, and i know what subjects i wasn't very good at so i was really good at maths really good at english i even took a statistics o level wow. i think because like oh he's good at maths get him, get him to do another subject mm. um but I wasn't great at um, science uh, or languages, like foreign languages. So, and once I established that, I'm like, well, I'm not going to need them. No. So I just switched off, uh, yes. which really would have annoyed teachers. And I can completely understand why that was the case. Mm. So if I was interested in a subject and I knew it would be of use to me, I was generally really good at it. And if I wasn't, then I just didn't. I did, I did whatever was required to get through, basically, because I just knew it wouldn't be. I'm not going to do chemistry when I leave school. No. So no. I'll just do what I need to pass and then clear off but that was very clever because there's so much pressure now isn't there on children that they have to be good at everything and it's ridiculous to think that a child can be or a teenager all these teenagers can be amazing at every single subject you know we just as also as parents have to accept you know what you're absolutely right you might not be good at that so it doesn't matter because you're not going to use it when you leave school I mean, I'm hoping with our kids, that's sort of what we've instilled in them. Um, they're now in their 20s, so all of that's behind them. But I know at the time, just go, you know, well, you're not good at this. Why? Don't worry about it. You know, do you want to be good at it? Not really. Okay. <laughs> then um, then just do do what you want to do. Yeah, league tables and all of this sort of stuff and the, and the need to achieve, the need to, you know, get the best grades possible. I mean, it's, lar it's largely nonsense, especially as it's such an exam-based um, education system. Uh, which again is nonsense because you don't do exams in the workplace no, you, you know I mean I just wish you know I just wish in 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 maths kids would dealt were taught how to run a, a, a bank account mm. how to balance their budgets how to manage their saving savings what credit you know what's good credit what's bad credit how to manage credit you know uh, it shouldn't fall on Martin Lewis to teach everyone these things I think you know <laughs> I'd, I'd, more of that at school would be great and just practical I mean just practical stuff you know so foreign languages we're still primarily offered French first mm. at schools. Mm. And I understand why that is historically closest country that speaks another language, historical ties, but it's never no use to you whatsoever, really, unless you want to do something in France. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, I would much rather, and, and also both my kids did French. I did French, everyone I know did French to a certain point. And none of us can speak French. No. It's like, well, we spent years doing this. I, you know, I, I would love there to be just international language classes where it's like you know what we're going to make you reasonably conversational in spanish french um you know mandarin japanese you know just yeah if you could leave secondary school able to you know order a meal and be polite in japanese cantonese italian that would be far more useful i think would. than doing it than doing a french you know a French GCSE. Yeah. I just, I, yeah. So, the way the way the education education system works is is bonkers. And 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 the, the classic point that um, I don't know if you've come across the the point that the late Sir Ken Robinson made, which was, our education system is designed to to produce academics. Mm, it is. Our priority order is maths, sciences, English. You know, and you gradually work your way down to the arts. Uh, which are secondary it's arts and sports are secondary things you know uh, in the way the education you know and the way we teach people is 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 to make them academic you know, I'd, I'd love kids to leave school as well-rounded individuals who can speak a few words in various languages understand the basic principles of science and you know we should be teaching kids about student debt mm. in maths we yeah. shouldn't necessarily be teaching them you know spending three weeks ten weeks or whatever on trigonometry 
do a bit of trigonometry, but you honestly, and every kid is like, oh, I'm never going to use that when I leave school. And you're right. Mm. I've never used it. No. Most people I knew have never used it. And if you are going to use it, you know you're going to, this is the thing. If you're into it and you know you're going to use it, you'll know that when you're 12, 13, 14. So yeah, I get a bit frustrated with the education system. I think it's far too league table led and that we're not teaching kids the right things. I um, um, I completely agree, Scott. The thing is, Scott, there are a few jobs going at the moment up top. So what, you know, you, could this be another next chapter for you that you, we could see you, you know, education secretary, go on. Well, I mean, up until this point, Ellie, I've been very fond of you, but you've now <laughs> massively insulted me by suggesting I, oh, yes, that I, I have the qualities of a politician. Oh, um, yes, I can see. So, but no, we need a new it, wave. We need a new wave, Scott, and you would be part of that new wave. Well, no, um, partly because um, uh, I have a, uh, although I seem like a nice chap, I have a deep down uh, distrust of my fellow human beings, <laughs> um, which, which I can prove by pointing out that there are still some people who think Boris Johnson should have come back uh, in, in that world. So oh, no. Um, the well, next chapter podcast is taking a turn here of its own. This is brilliant. <laughs> politics, it, politics is utterly ridiculous in this country. I mean, utterly ridiculous in this country. And you can probably count the genuine individuals who are in it to make lives better for other people and not themselves on probably one or two hands. I mean, there are so few, mm. so few mm. that I think are genuinely in it to do good. Uh, and the vast majority of them are in it to do to, to further their own uh, their own causes. Mm. Um, and yeah, God, awful! Mm. What a horrible bunch of people! Um, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people listening are thinking the same. But for now, before we do our little political ch next chapter spin-off, let me bring you back to this. <laughs> <laughs> let me bring you back to this one. So, did you go to university? Am I going to insult you by saying that now? Asking you that question. No, no, it doesn't insult me by asking it, but no, I didn't. I left home when I was uh, just turned 17, so I was working and okay. I decided to carry uh, I, I, w I got a job pretty quickly and I quite enjoyed earning money. And um, I, there wasn't really a subject that I was interested enough in. So having left home and having got a job and having got a salary, I mean, it surprised a lot of people um, because obviously it's like, like academically I was quite good so everyone expected that I'd go to university and do something but there wasn't really anything I wanted to do I never ever wanted to do English literature because I actually think for me personally um, you know studying a book ruins a book mm. you know I, I don't I really don't want to do that um, the only subject I had a remote interested interest in is um, sort of uh, what, what was at the time called classical civilization so Greek and Roman um, art and literature and stuff but I can't do languages and you can't do that at degree level unless you can learn and speak ancient Greek and Latin. And I was just all, I just knew I was awful at that. So yeah, there were no subjects I was interested in. I'd already left home. I was already, um, already earning a wage. So I just and carried we, on working. Basically. Is this when you went to work in the record shop in HMV? Eventually I had a brief spell as a receptionist at a vid video editing facility in um, Soho. Wow. Which was wow. really, really interesting because I was only like 18 and I was in I was in Old Compton Street. And so I saw the whole of Soho, like mm. everything, um, you know, opposite one of the most popular um, gay pubs in London. So wonderful stuff going on there. Um, the back entrance to the place was where a lot of the sex workers took their clients. So there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Great food in the middle of Soho, all sorts of interesting things going. So this was Soho in the late 80s. 
um, and you know, famous people walking past all the time. And and as it was a video editing suite, you know, we were doing pop videos and stuff. So you know, Paul mm-hmm. McCartney would come in, and Tina Turner would come in, and, wow. you know, all this sort of stuff. So for a teenager, that was great fun. And then really oddly, and this is genuinely, it sounds ridiculous, sounds utterly ridiculous, but it is true. <laughs> I did that for about a year. And then a very small poetry publisher wanted me to do a collection of my poems. And so I, t- I left to take three months off to work on the poetry collection. So hang on, so you were writing, you were writing poems at this stage? Yeah, yeah, I don't think, looking back, I don't think they were great, but they weren't awful. And how did um, they find out about you then? So in those days, you would send your poems off to magazines right. and you'd literally put three or four poems in an envelope, put a stamp self-addressed envelope in with your poems and then send them off. And then two, three, four, five months later, someone would reply going no or yes. And so I'd had, during my sort of late teens, um, I'd had a few things um published and so i think 1990 so i was just about to so i was 1920 i think um one of the magazines that had published me a few times said look i'm doing a little chat book a little you know just a little booklet i'd love to do a collection of your poems um and i thought this is great i'm going to be a poet so i i'll quit work and i'll do i mean i wasn't i didn't think i was gonna make a living out of it but i thought you know i'll get another job it's fine so i just took a few months off to work on the collection and so yeah i was 20 years old and this collection came out um but um, wow, and you know, amazing. I think they only printed like a hundred copies. And it was uh, like small press stuff. Yeah, it was it was quite, it was quite fun. I've still got a copy lying around, and occasionally I'm like my old friends at the time. I've still got your little collection of poems. It's really worth a um, So yeah. Were you living Sorry? at home? Were you were living at home still? No, no, no. I, living... I had a flat with my girlfriend at the time. Wow. So I, I'd moved from Canvey Island to Chalkwell, wow. which is on the other side of the Thames. And so basically, I grew up in Southeast Essex, South End, Westcliff you know, all that sort of stuff. And Canby Island is off the coast there. Um, so yeah, I just, um, I did that. And then once the poetry book was submitted, I then went to look for another job. And that's when I got a job. Uh, I did a bit of temping to pay the bills. And then um, HMV were opening, opening a new shop in South End on Sea. And I applied, went for an interview, got the job, but there was already a shop. So they were going to have two shops in South End. There was already a shop, which was a concession in a big department store. And they said, right, we're going to put you in there until the new shop opens so you can get trained mm. um so was in there but the other shop got delayed and i ended up being there so long that i was like the number three by the time the new shop opened so the manager was like he's not going we're keeping him so i stayed there so you stayed there and we <laughs> used... to start. so i was working yeah i was working in record shops from like 91 i think right and you were there i didn't realize i didn't quite realize that. i knew there was something but you were there quite a while then weren't you yeah, I, w- I worked in shops. I managed shops. I managed a shop in Cambridge and a shop, an HMV shop in Basingstoke. And then I got asked to come and work in head office. So I was there for a decade. I was for the basically for the whole nineties. Mm. I was working in music retail um, and well, entertainment retail, I suppose, which is a fascinating time because that was like Stone Roses, Grunge, Nirvana, um, REM became huge. Um, you know, Manchester, Second Sum- Summer of Love, Happy Mondays, all, all of that sort of stuff um really interesting time for music but at the same time it's when dvds first came out yeah. so there was this whole new technology people were getting excited about and you now can't even get rid of at the charity shop um so yeah really interesting time to work in in music research so i ended up being a head office buyer and my last two or three years there i was um head of buying for hmv island so i looked after all the stuff that we bought for for the hmv stores in ireland so it was got you know you know, interesting head office retail, free tickets to gigs. Yeah, amazing. Um, you know, ra- you know, Radiohead. Um, you know, the whole Oasis versus Blur thing that all happened mm-hmm. while I was there. Um, you know, what like interesting time. You know, I'm trying to remember people like Tori Amos came out, and 
yeah, it was um, it was fascinating. Really interesting time to be working in in music. So I was a retailer basically for yeah. for a decade there. Because a lot of people, we're going to move on now to the publishing, but a lot of people do say that the music industry and publishing industry are actually quite similar. Would you agree with that? Um, they are similar, but the um, the music industry is very fast paced, and the publishing industry is incredibly slow and mm. antiquated. Um, and it's sort of interesting. You, I mean, I think the music industry has has almost collapsed two or three times because of different aspects of new technology, and certainly music retail died a, a big death um, when digital came in. Um, whereas the publishing industry, which is like a hundred years behind every other industry, is still sort of going on, partly because it's so antiquated and because it does things in a certain way. So I think part of the reason it survived is, is it's like this big woolly mammoth with a thick skin. Mm, yeah, well, <laughs> which we get. So, so they are they are different. Um, in terms of pace, um, you know, so, you know, in HMV, a new Radiohead album would come out and, you know, the HMV shops would sell tens of thousands of copies in a day. Yeah. Like just loads of them. And then but a big book would sell like a thousand copies in a day. Yeah. So it was Big really difference. different. And yeah. Um, yeah, it was really interesting to me to see that, see the difference. Because yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically leading on to well, probably where we're going next. Yeah, HMV bought Waterstones. At the okay. end of the nineties, okay. and there was, and basically, I was sent in to Waterstones as some sort of spy, because <laughs> basically, the the boss of the whole business said, "Look, we've bought Waterstones. I'm not entirely convinced their buying practices are sensible, commercially viable. Can you go in and do a few things and just report back?" So, of course, I was sent in as this dodgy music <laughs> retailer into this wonderful world of books and publishing. And uh, they were highly suspicious of me. It was really interesting. <laughs> I think you make a good spy, though. I well, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, think it it. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it was partly. It was basically go in, set up a couple of. Pro the, the, the key thing was, HMV did really big promotions. So when they did a sort of, I don't know, three for twenty quid campaign on CDs, you could go into your local HMV and there'd be a thousand CDs to choose from. You know, it was huge. They were huge things and they made a fortune for the business. Whereas Waterstones, if they did a three for two, they had 50 books in it. Yeah. Uh, so they were like, their stuff just seems so small, Scott. Can you go and, and just play around with a few promotions and see if, if they're telling me that's all they can do, but we're not, we're not sure if it's true. Can you go in and have a look and see if that is actually how it works? So I went in and I, I, I just made what I thought was the logical argument, which was, look, I'm one of your customers. I read a lot of books. If you offer me a three for two promotion on 50 books, well, I've read 10 of them already, so they're out, you know. There are 15, 20 of them I have no interest in whatsoever because they're not my kind of book. So that leaves me with a three for two on 20 books, 25 mm -hmm. books, and that's not enough. Um, so, yeah, so I tried to bring in sort of bigger, bolder promotions. Um, and uh, that was, a yeah, so I reported back. So, yeah, of course they can do bigger promotions. They'd make much more money if they made bigger promotions. And then the decision was, well, do we do it or not? And that was sort of, we did do, do it and I stayed and the promotions got bigger. And um, on the one hand, the company made loads more money. I mean, it, is the, it was the most successful period in the company's history. They made an absolute fortune. Mm. But on the other hand, the promotions came so, became so big that um, it became a bit of a monster. And I think it was a really interesting time because it got to a point where publishers were like, this promotion is too big. It's too mm. powerful. If our book doesn't get into the promotion, the book's dead before it's published, which wasn't quite true, but there was an element of truth in it. So we had this massive three for two that had like 500 books in it. 
And if you had two similar, if you had two history books on a similar subject and one was selected for three for two and one wasn't, the one in the three for two would sell 10, 20, 30 times more. Mm. Um, and so publishers were like, it's so focused on getting in the three for two that it did become a bit of a monster. But the weird thing, the, the odd thing was, of course, at various stages, like you get a new MD in and they're like, oh, the promotion's too big, make it smaller. And you're like, okay, no problem. So you make it smaller. And then three weeks later, they go, our sales are plummeting. What's yeah. going on? Yeah, like, yeah. well, you know, what do you want? Yeah. So yeah, it was a really interesting period and a really sort of slightly, uh, slightly odd period because you know, it got so big that people were quite anti it. And then, but when you reduced it, people were like, oh, we're not making as much money as we did. Mm. Um, and then, and then years later, when, when James Dorn um, took over the business and killed the three for two completely, big publishers were watching their paperback sales just plummet. I mean, mm. I, w w one publisher said our paperback sales with Wallstones are half what they were when the three for two was on. Doesn't mean the three for two was perfect. Doesn't mean it necessarily should have stayed, but it it, it made a quite a bold impact on the industry. And mm. uh, so it was interesting. Yeah. So I spent like six, seven years at Waterstone. So then, so you then, so essentially, I suppose you were still working. Were you still working for HMV? Well, I suppose you were. Because HMV then bought Waterstones. But was so buying books. So you were a buyer at HMV, and then you were buying books. I think you were about six years doing this, which I think this yeah, is yeah. fascinating. And then, so how did that compare? Because again, this is, I understand a little bit more, mainly listening to your podcast and things like that, which is how, how we met. But for those mm. listeners don't understand, so when you walk into Waterstones, you see those books there on the table. And as I understand it, it's the publishers, each publisher owns basically a slot and you, the publishers can only have so many books out. So this is why a lot, there's sort of such a sort of blockage as such in the traditional world of publishing, because a bookshop only has so many, so much room for so many books and the publisher has only so many spaces. I don't know if I've explained that well or correctly. Well, you, uh, I understand where you're coming from, but you are actually wrong. Oh, so, good. Um, <laughs> so no. Story of my life talking to you, Scott Pack. Yes, uh, direct and to the point. So, um, no, the way, I mean, it, it differs. I mean, it's, it's done slightly differently now to how it was in my day, but, but generally speaking, um, the, the way you're right is that books have, uh, bookshops have finite space. Yeah. So if you just yeah. take an average size bookshop and you think about their sort of A to Z sections, there are certain books they have to stop. Yeah. You've got to stop Catcher in the Rye. You need to stop the books of Margaret Atwood, you know, Annie Prue, whoever, whoever it might be. So, you know, depending on the size of the shop, you know, you need to stock certain authors and certain books. Um, now that will fill up two thirds of your shop easily just mm. by having the stuff you just need to have to be considered a half decent bookshop. Then you've got loads of new stuff being published. And what the head office buyers tend to do in any book retailer is decide, well, which of these new books do we need to really get behind? So which of these books do we need to have on the table at the front of the shop? And the honest answer is actually you don't need many of them you know you do need the new lee child you do need the new ali smith you know because there's going to be what what books are coming out where people will be in our shops in the first week of publication wanting those books um so all the all any authors in any genre that you can think of they need to be there because if you wander into your local um Waterstones and there's a new Marion Keys book out and they don't have the Marion Keys book you'll be like what's going on that's mm. a bit rubbish so yeah so there's a certain books where their hands are tight they've got to stop them and you know it's a fairly simple process what did the last Marion Keys book sell in hardback 
So we'll buy a similar amount and we'll put it out there. And, and you know, if it sells better, that's great. It's not going to sell massively less. So that's one side of it. So you've got all the books you have to stock because you're a bookshop. Then you've got the new books by people that and authors that you know your, your customers are going to want. And that will differ a bit from retailer to retailer. So there'll be books that a WH Smith customer expects to find. They don't necessarily expect to find in Waterstone, for example. There's a little bit of that. And then you've got books that you don't know for sure are going to sell, but you're pretty confident they're going to sell. You know, so, you know, maybe it's a celebrity biography or it's a, a history book on a particular topic that's relevant. Okay. And then you've not really got a huge amount of space left. And that's where you curate your list. So everything else is sort of decided for you, if you're honest. Mm. And the rest of what you stock is a curated list. You sit there and go, you know, I'm the fiction buyer at Waterstones. I've read these five debut novels. I think these three are great. I want to give these three some space. You don't think about who the publishers are. Right. Publishers don't have set slots or set space. Okay. They're all vying for space. Now, it might be that Penguin Books have... Jamie Oliver cookbook out at the same time as they've got you know a really acclaimed history book and they've got three celebrity memoirs and three of their Booker Prize winning authors have also got novels out so they're all just going to get in you know right. there's no bookshops going to say oh sorry Penguin you can only have two of these three Booker Prize winning you know they, they all get in so the curation part comes from um you know what don't we have to put in that we would like to put in um so yeah there's no slots specific to certain publishers um, what happens, though, is if you're going to give promotional space to a book, the convention is that the publisher will support that with a bit of discount or a bit of marketing spend. Right. Um, so generally speaking, the books you see at the front of a bookshop are, are getting extra discount. But they're not there because of the extra discount. They've been selected. And the convention is we will support. It's, it's a simple thing. You know, if I'm if I'm putting a book at the front of the shop, I'm buying 10,000 copies, maybe. Yeah. So you're going to, you know, well, thanks for buying 10,000 copies. Here's a bit of discount because you could have bought 500 copies. That's sort, that's sort of how it works. Now, different retailers work differently. I think uh, the supermarkets and, and WH Smith play a bit more hardball. And it's like, if you want to be in our chart, it's 10 grand. And if you don't pay the 10 grand, there is no way you're going to be in our chart, no matter how many copies your book sells, whatever it might be. Um, and that's a, that's a certain way of working. Um, but at the same time, there are also books they have to stop irrespective of what happens. So, so yeah, there's no, there's no fixed slots in Waterstones. And, and of course, the wonderful, the best part of the book selling sector are the independent bookshops. And they don't get that level of discount. And they just stock the books they think their customers want or that they love and they want to recommend to customers, which is the most purest form of book selling, I think. Okay. Now, before we go on to that, just to get, again, clear some of this up, the yep. myths, the myths, the Sunday Times bestseller list what what are those books so um so there's a company called nielsen book scan or nielsen book data i uh, can't remember which and um they basically uh work with all sorts of, of, of areas of retail but in book retail they get information from most bookshops so when you take a book to the counter they scan it with, they scan the barcode obviously that information goes to the till so that they can sell you the book that information goes to the company's head office so they know what they're selling but that information also goes to Nielsen, who go, oh, that book sold a copy. And they collate all that information every week, and they have an arrangement with the Sunday Times, which I assume the Sunday Times pay a reasonable amount of money for, um, where they will collate that information and go, right, well, here are the top 10 fiction paperbacks, here are the top 10 non-fiction paperbacks and hardbacks and so on. So it's a genuine reflection of what's actually selling in the market. There's a little bit of tweaking because... 
and it's common sense tweaking. So, you know, one of the best selling paperbacks every week would be the highway code mm. because people are buying it all the time because they're doing their driving tests and driving lessons and stuff. So I think if I remember correctly, they take things like that out. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then certain times of the year, there are certain, I could like the plumber's manual or something will be absolutely huge. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily relevant to the Sunday times customers, but generally speaking, it's a really pure list. Here's what's selling. And what, what I say to people, if you, if you, if you're interested in that, just have a look because they actually print the number of copies sold. Mm. And I think people might sometimes be surprised because you can get into the top 10 hardback chart by selling like a thousand copies mm. a week. That's incredible. Which, which is a lot, you know, if one of my books sold a thousand copies in a week, I'd be absolutely blooming delighted. Yeah. But, um, but you know, that's not a huge amount. No. I mean, you know, there are 1400 WH Smith shops in the country. So, you know, you could sell one copy of your book in two thirds of the WH Smith stores and not a single copy anywhere else in the country. And you'd be in the top 10. That's incredible. And does that, does that list include the supermarkets? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, uh, it includes Amazon. Um, it, uh, there are some retailers that don't submit to it, but pretty much anywhere that scans a barcode will be on there. Some small indies don't submit because I think there's a fee involved or there's some sort of subscription involved and they, they don't want to pay it. And that's fair enough. Mm. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, yeah, online retailers. Yeah, absolutely. And I will move on because I'm just fascinated now. By so say, for example, okay. we've had Angela Marsons on this podcast mm -hmm. and she is a huge author, has sold millions and millions of books. But as far mm. as I know, she's never been on the Sunday Times bestseller, but yet she's been Amazon, one of Amazon's top selling publishers. Yeah. Uh, authors so how does that work then does does is why would that happen is that because she's selling ebooks on amazon yeah so ebooks don't count towards the sunday times bestseller charts it's uh, print books only <clears throat> so if she is she in the, independently published is she um uh, i think she has been certainly in the past but i think yeah. mainly, oh she does well she does bookature okay yeah so if so that's going to be ebook primarily yeah and ebooks do not um uh don't don't um, uh, comply with the, they're basically not included in those, in those Nielsen book scan data because the vast, and this is the thing Amazon don't, Amazon don't supply the data on what eBooks they sell. Right. Because in the UK, I would say they're 90 to 95% of all eBook sales. Yeah. So they're a massive, massive monopoly. They, that's secure information. They don't want people to know it basically. So um, I think for the last few years, the bookseller, which is sort of the industry magazine, has been curating its own ebook chart by having publishers tell them how many copies they sold right just because otherwise there is no ebook chart so i would be surprised if she wasn't in that chart yeah i, I think she is sometimes. i think she is yeah. yeah but yeah so the sunday times by chart is print book sales only which again is an example of how antiquated our industry is mm. Because the chart everyone recognises as the Sunday Times bestseller chart only includes print books, mm. only, like doesn't include any sales of ebooks whatsoever. Um, so it's reliant on print books sold through bookshops. And then you know we won't go into this, but the whole fact that um, our broad our broadsheet books media, so the reviews pages of of the key newspapers, will only really give any prominence to hardbacks. They do not review paperbacks properly. They have a small, they still have a small section for paperbacks. It's only paperbacks have only been around for 110 years. So, you know, there's still time for them to come round to them as a format. <laughs> but um, they give priority to hardbacks. They treat hardbacks as proper books, and you will get a full page review for your new hardback, but you will not get anything like that for a paperback. And that means that 
the format that most readers read is not reviewed in newspapers and that's all that's all based on the whole old school way of publishing it's it's antiquated and ridiculous but i don't think it'll change but so ebooks will come in in about the year 3000 ebooks and ebooks never will no literally and there's no way the broadsheet press will ever ever focus the only time i've ever seen them review something that was published as an ebook only was when um the late great hillary mantel uh, did an ebook uh, essay about her time in hospital and it was published purely as an ebook and a couple of newspapers covered it but interestingly they didn't actually review it they just did a little article about it um they they it does not compute they they will not um i don't think they'll ever review ebooks in any great shape or form mm-hmm. um because it's just it's, they they can't cope that's great okay right well look we're learning it so much here so coming back to you so you so and before we do move on because you're six how when you were a buyer for waterstones how did you do it scott how did those books and i'm not that i'm asking this for any other reason other than my own but um the those books those debut novels what would make you think do you know what because obviously you were looking at all genres as well what would make you think do you know what i'm going to give that one a go so, so just to clarify, I did very little actual buying myself. So I was head of the buying team. I think we had about 15 people in the team. So I had a fiction buyer, non-fiction buyer, campaign buyer, all that sort of stuff. So I did very little buying myself um, and, and hopefully gave them as much room as possible. But effectively, the fiction buyer would read as much as possible that was sent to them. And they'd look and go, OK, well, I think our customers would like this or I'm very passionate about this. Now, I would say, you know, if I was sent books as well. If I read something and loved it, I'd say to the team, you know, so I remember being sent a book called um, The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. And the publisher said, I, and they sent me it as a manuscript. They said, we really think you're going to love this. Would you be prepared to read it like literally as a pile of printed paper? Which I did. Um, and I did love it. And I said to the people, look, th- this is great. We really want to get behind it. And it ended up being an absolute huge international bestseller, not because we got behind it, but we were able to see it early, um, which was great. So, yeah, I would step in occasionally and say, I really love this. Let's get behind it um and and yeah it was a, it really was a case of like i said to you, you know some books you just have to stock you know it's a new book by a successful author of course we have to stock it and then you'd think about you know maybe i've got like space for 30 other titles this month what 30 titles shall i go for these are my personal preference these are also the books that i really think our customers will like even if i don't personally like them and here are a few gambles here are a few risks well yeah let's go for this you know, weird book about punctuation or something, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you give it a go. And then every month you review what you've done. And actually some of the books that you get behind have done so well that they need to stay there. Mm. Well, this, this has got to stay because it's done brilliantly. So yeah, a bit of personal choice, but your personal choice is always, it was always sort of um, informed by your customer base. Mm-hmm. You know, so Waterstone's customers, you know, tend to read more literary fare, tend to read more literary fiction. They also love crime and sci-fi. And Waterstones didn't have a great customer base for sort of um, sort of Mills and Boone romance or, or the sort of um, saga side of things. They could still sell it, but they didn't have the uh, necessarily the customer base for it. So, yeah, you just make you make a decision based on what you know. So mm. because then so then you but then you moved yourself into the publishing side. So how did that happen? Because then you went to work. Did you go from Waterstones onto P- Harper Collins? No, sort of via, via a small indie. So so. Uh, I mean, the honest, the honest truth is, uh, Waterstone's got a new MD. He wanted to do a bunch of things um, that I just didn't think would work. And he, and he actually came up with like the most ridiculous buying system. He said, I want to buy uh, books in a very different way. And 
um, it just it was like it was ridiculous. I was like, this is never going to work, and you need me to head it up, and I can't head it up because I don't believe for a second it's going to work. So I just left basically. Um, but I left in the knowledge that you know I'd had a quite a high profile job in book retail for a while, and there was a chance that a few publishers would be interested. So I actually got an offer from a small indie called the Friday Project. Um, they wanted to make me a director. I thought that was quite interesting. They were doing some really interesting things. They were basically taking internet content and turning it into books, so blogs into books and, mm. and all sorts of things. Um, and as soon as it, was, as it was obvious that the business was going, going to tank. Uh, so basically, HarperCollins bought it before out of administration. So it was, it, was, um, it, was, it was not the most pleasant of times, but then HarperCollins bought it and eventually they put me in charge. So for about five, six years, so I went to a small indie that basically went bust. HarperCollins bought it, and then I ran it as an imprint of HarperCollins for about five, six years, something like that. Mm, and, and that so was it was a, a roundabout route to get into a big publisher. Okay. Yeah. And were you doing the same thing there as in the original intention, like turning internet content into books? No, that quickly became something that just wasn't didn't necessarily have the mileage. Um, so we did all sorts of things, published all sorts of interesting fiction and non-fiction from around the world. You know, I did stuff with like Stuart Copeland from The Drummer in the Police, um, published a few award-winning books, which was great, a bit of experimental fiction, all sorts of stuff. I mean, but to be honest, one, once I was put in charge, I was given free reign to do what I wanted. It was a little experimental imprint. I was very lucky. Um, so yeah, that was, that was great. It was a really interesting time. Yeah. Did that for about five or six years. Work with lots of great authors who I'm still in touch with. Um, yeah, absolutely loved it. Uh, it was interesting. Well, I, I, I loved I loved working with the book. I didn't like commuting into London. And I got a bit fed up because and co the corporate structure was not really for me. Mm. Uh, you know, when, when you have to go to a meeting about a meeting, I think we've reached a point where, you know, maybe things need to change. I can see you not enjoying that, Scott. And where, where were you living at this stage? Because presumably had you met your lovely wife by now, because now you live in Windsor, which I know very well. But where, yeah, where, what was your situation at home? Oh, yeah, no, I'd lived, in, I'd lived in Windsor for like, I've lived in Windsor for like 25 years or so. Okay. So, so I, I moved to Windsor during my HMV days. Oh, lovely, mm. lovely. And you had your children by then, by this stage? Yep. Yeah, so uh, I managed to have a child in, in two different centuries, which is quite that's, that's good quite going. Fancy. So one born in 1999, yeah. Ethan was born in 1999, and Martha was born in 2001. Okay, okay. So so then when you were at HarperCollins, but you did you then, forgive me, is that when you stayed at HarperCollins, or then did you go more into the indie publishing world? So I was at HarperCollins for about five or six years, and then I left to go sort of freelance, but I worked with two or three indie publishers um so i worked with unbound uh the crowdfunding publisher i also worked with iron lightning books for a while so i basically had a couple of deals going on so with unbound i would get paid for any book i launched with them on their crowdfunding site and then i would get an ongoing commission on sales so i wasn't i wasn't a salaried individual um and then with iron lightning i was on a small retainer but then also a commission on sales so it was like you know why don't I do the acquiring that I do, but without having to be in the office five days a week and, you know, can explore that. So, yeah, so, you know, I don't I don't actively acquire for either of those publishers now, but I had great fun doing it. And of course, I'm still getting a commission on the books. Mm, that's that amazing. Selling. And some really, you know, some really great books published there, I think. You know, I was the first person to publish Brian Bilston, the Internet poet, who's now huge and doing lots of other things elsewhere. Um, you know, I published, uh, you know, a couple of. 
what a couple of wonderful New Zealand and Australian authors, award-winning authors over there. Um, so yeah, you know, things are ticking over quite nicely. So that's good. It was amazing. And did you, um, were you editing by this stage? Were you book editing? So when I was, so throughout my publishing career, I've edited a lot of the books I've acquired. Mm. Um, so I, when I decided to go freelance, one of the things I chose to do was freelance editing. So make myself available to authors to edit. And um, yeah, so so I really started doing that properly like sort of six, seven years ago. When I when I left HarperCollins, it was one of the things I did. When I when I went freelance, I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to do it or not. Would I be able to pay the bills? Mm. Um, so the fact that I was working with Unbound and Iron Lightning was actually quite useful because there was sort of an, a residual amount of money coming in. And then gradually the editing took more and more time. And so now, now I basically pay the bills by doing freelance editing and everything else I do is sort of extra. Okay, okay. Well, we are moving into that now. But just before we go, I'm going to just ask you another question. Because again, okay. just for those listening, because obviously because my ch next chapter's book. So when I speak with people, it, it's a bit like, because I also work in the TV industry, It's hard, sometimes you just don't understand how the industry works, even though yeah, people yeah. are buying books every day. So with, with the book situation, and it is still the case now, there's kind of like five major publishers, would you say? Is it they call them the big five? I don't know if they yeah, are yeah. still five. And then, but then the so then more and more we're seeing independent publishers, which again I see it in television, in the fact that it used to be ITV, BBC, Channel Four. Now you've got you've got a lot of uh, what we see on TV. It might even be on ITV, but it's made by an independent, and ITV have bought yeah. it. So it's all changing. So within the it, so within the um, publishing world, you're seeing more and more of these of these independent um like boldwood or like joffy books these kind which um people listen to this probably don't know the names of these mm. books because you don't like you say you don't look at the name of the publisher you look at the book or the author of course, but yeah. how how important do you think those independent publishers are at the moment in the publishing world compared with the the, the big ones that we all know so i mean independent the independent side of all of the book world is is incredibly important and vibrant so independent book selling is vital um, independent publishing is great. I mean, you look at someone like Fitzcarraldo Editions, who seemingly publish, you know, very literary, serious content or or or, or sometimes quite obscure content. Um, international writers, they have almost zero cover design. I mean, their covers are just text. They they all look the same. But three of their authors have won the Nobel Prize for Literature in the last five or six years. You know, so you've got that sort of amazing stuff going on. You've got interesting independent stuff going on um, all over the place, sometimes focusing on particular genres. So independent publishing is, is vital. I, I, I'm, it's really hard to make any money out of it. And they are, they're working with a handicap because if you look at, so um, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see loads and loads of Sunday supplements doing there. What are the best books for Christmas? You know, and all 90% of those will be big publishers. Mm. Yeah. Uh, if you um, if you analyse the reviews pages of the the newspapers and look at which publisher published each book they reviewed, half of them will be the big five, almost always. And um, there are independents get a look in, but those independents are Bloomsbury or Faber and Faber or Granter, who are really big. I mean, they're great, but they're really big established publishers. They're, they are in technically indies, mm. but these are big companies with lots of staff and mm. big offices in london you know the indies that have three members of staff and they might they might not even have a physical office those guys will struggle 
to get their books reviewed in the newspapers and those guys will struggle to have their books in gift guides and also struggle to get their books into bookshops mm. um you know so i mean when i so i enlightening i published a uh, um i published a book called um well actually i published i published a few books um where um that were massive award winners in australia and new zealand and around the world and i thought oh these are bad you know these are bound to get you know well i hope they would get review coverage in the uk um and they just didn't so a good example so there's a book called an isolated incident by emily Maguire, and in australia it was shortlisted for the miles franklin prize which is their booker prize okay. yeah so that's a big literary award it was also shortlisted um for the Ned Kelly Prize, which is their Crime Daggers Award, and you know, that's their big crime award. And it was also um, shortlisted for the Stella Prize, which is their Women's Prize for Fiction. So if a book in the UK had been shortlisted for the Booker, the Women's Prize for Fiction, and the Crime, the Daggers Awards, then without question, that book would have been covered in every newspaper in the country. It's like, this is a really important book, we've got to, we've got to cover it. Not a single newspaper in the UK even looked at it. So we went to them saying, look, this has been shortlisted for every single major award in Australia. And it's a great book. And it's a crime novel that focuses on crime from a feminist viewpoint. It's, it's got loads of stuff going for it. It's very much very now. No one. Because we were a small, tiny publisher. Yeah. Like, well, we haven't got room for it, you know. That's and that sort shocking. of thing. So that would always annoy me. Because it's like, look, this book has the credentials. Mm. 100% has. There's no reason for you not to review this, apart from the fact that you just haven't got around to looking at it. And they just didn't get around to looking at it. Mm. So that sort of thing frustrates me and is always the case. And, and there are lots of small publishers, independent publishers, publishing much more worthy material than, you know, stuff that certainly should get review coverage. And, 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 they, just, and they just struggle unless they get a breakthrough. So Fitzcarraldo editions will almost certainly get reviewed in the broadsheets because they've had three authors win the Nobel Prize. Mm. But when they started, they struggled. Is it a snobbery? I, I, I think it's partly... Literary editors get so much stuff sent their way that they are, I think, automatic. They've got to whittle it down somehow. And part of how they whittle it down is they deal with the people they trust. Also, a bit like bookshops, there are certain books they have to review every week. If Ian McEwan's got a new book out, they have to review it. Their readers expect them to review it. And so a big chunk of their review space is taken up by stuff they have to review. What I find frustrating is that they, I don't think enough of them go out of their way to say, look, we've got one or two review slots every week for something a bit different. Let's look at the tiny indies. Let's see what they're doing. Let's fight. Let's champion something great. So I, I've not found for, it's been a long time since I've felt that broadsheet newspapers have sort of championed something. That, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if like a small indie, you know, if a reviewer for the times championed something that no one else had championed, yeah. no one else, you know, for me, journalistically, that's interesting. Yeah. But it, it, it doesn't happen. I, I think, you know, it's lack of space, you know, in the review page. The other thing is, of course, um, literary editors will tell you we have less space now than we used to. Mm. So it's much harder. Now, I'd say, well, maybe you'd have more space if you were reviewing more interesting things. It's a bit mm. unfair of me, but, you know, it's just <laughs> like do something different and interesting and maybe you'll have the space. But then that's why bloggers have such influence now. And that's why you know podcasters and tiktokers are, are having more you know one interesting tiktok video will have more impact than any book review in a newspaper 
because they're approaching interesting things they're doing things in an interesting way mm, so yeah the, the gap is there isn't it and people are making the most of it but there's certainly mm. more to be done so then moving on so the thing is what you're saying is scott i really should listen to you when i when you do my book edits because you kind of do know what you're talking about so i will listen i will listen a little bit more i mean i do listen but I'll listen even you're, more you're a very you're a very good author you oh, take you. the criticism very well and you, you you're curious about why something isn't working and and we have good chats about it so no no you're you're, you're huh. well done you're a very oh. well behaved author. wow i'll take that blimey i've got to carry on with the podcast normally i'd stop now in a bit of shock um yeah. but so so going on so now look this next chapter of yours is slightly tricky because it's so fascinating and i'm conscious of okay. time but i think we're going to do it in three parts three parts to this second chapter that i'm not very good i'm not like you with your statistics earlier on so not so now so you left you went you left again as such the publishing world and you work as a book editor you um helping emerging writers i love that mm -hmm. um but you also had your own book you wrote your own book tips of a publisher which i which we'll talk about but then also on top of that you've written your another book literary cats and then here's the twist in the tale, like all good fiction stories have. Not only that, and this is just fascinates me. You write the questions for Mastermind. Brilliant. Yeah, there's quite a lot to get in there. Yes. So essentially, after several years in publishing, I, I got a bit bored with the treadmill. So every book, you, you go through the same process with every book, but then you've got to try and get it out there and, and you bother people. You know, Will you review it? Will you mention it? Can I get a quote? And I just got fed up with that. And I thought, you know what? And also, even though I was only working part time in publishing, you have to check your emails every day. You have to get back to an author straight away. And that's perfectly reasonable. I, I just got fed up with it. I was like, you know what? I can get enough work from editing. I don't need to go through the, you know, the hustle and grind of, of daily publishing. So I very gladly stepped away. And it's probably one of the best decisions I made. I had a great time while I was doing it. But now, yeah, so so. I pay the bills by editing people's books. People come to me direct or there's a website called Readsy where um, people can contact me. Um, and I also do workshops and, and classes and stuff. And that's where tips from a publisher came because I had all these handouts and class notes. And I thought, well, actually, if I bring all this together, I could perhaps produce a, a handbook for authors, emerging authors that could be quite useful. Um, so yeah, tips from a publisher is basically everything I know as a publisher and all the mistakes I see authors made explained and, 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 and that sort of stuff. So yeah, so editing, bit of writing, uh, the new book, Literary Cats, I co-wrote with my friend, Judith Robinson. And it's an exploration of cats in literature across the ages and across the genres. So there's a chapter on science fiction cats and there's a chapter on cats in kid book, kids books. So, I, yeah, I, I sort of write a book every couple of years. Very lucky to be able to do that. And yeah, I also I write some of the specialist subject questions for Mastermind. That is just brilliant. right. Before we come back, back to that. OK, so first of all, when you do like with your tips of a publisher. Now, I found that book really helpful. And that's sort of where mm. our past next. I heard you talking about it on the bestseller experiment. We've had mm. the lovely Mark DeVoe on this as well. But on that now, if someone is listening to this, I mean, you so you help me. And, and I got in touch with you. I thought, look, you know, I had gone down the, the path of trying to get to an agent and soul destroying as so many people have yeah. years and years. And I heard you speak and talked about that you actually had self-published the I think the ebook version of that you just you just popped it up and you were shocked at how 
having worked in the publishing industry for so long, you're all even even you were surprised at how easy it, easy it was. Now, of all the pros and cons, and without sort of going too much into the detail now, if somebody is listening to this in my situation that I was in, and obviously I made my decision, but just just sort of push my decision aside. What, and if someone's listened to this thinking, God, look, you know, I have written a book and I'm, you know, again, not really getting anywhere. How viable do you think self-publishing is? Do you do you recommend it? Do, would you recommend self-publishing? It can be. Yeah. I mean, I talk in the book about the various options that are open to authors and you've just got to be honest with yourself about what it is you're trying to achieve. So what I did, I, I do um, a regular masterclass for The Guardian called How to Perfect Your Submission. And effectively, I took the notes from that and turned it into an ebook. So it's one chapter of tips from a publisher that I self-published a couple of years before. Because I'm like, I've got, you know, the Guardian Masterclass is quite expensive. And where I do, when I do it elsewhere, you know, I, not everyone can attend. So maybe I could do a version of this that's a cheap ebook. But because it's only 40, 50 pages long, it could only really be a self-published ebook. It's not something I could take to a publisher. So I self-published an ebook. It was indeed very easy to do. Um, but yeah, author, it's very, it's viable as long as you're realistic about what you can achieve. So you have to make sure you have some very good editorial input on your book. So even if it's just a copy edit to make sure the sentences make sense and are properly punctuated, but if you're writing a novel, then having an editor to give you some guidance on that is very helpful. You've got to have a decent cover. Most self-published or many self-published authors make the mistake of putting a terrible cover on their book. But the process itself is quite easy. In fact, one of the classes I do, I, I've done it online and in person, is I, um, I do a class where I self-publish a book on Amazon in an hour. So I do it live on screen. So I did it online a couple of months ago and literally I share my screen. I'm like, right, I'm going to show you how to format the text. Then I'm going to show you how to fill in all the forms on Amazon. And then I'm going to show you how to upload it. And you can do it all in an hour. Obviously you need to write the book first. That takes more than an hour, but yeah, it's really easy to do, but then you've also got to be realistic about how you're going to market it. Yeah. So, you know, when you first, when you published your first book, you're, you were not known as an author. Uh, but you do have a bit of a public profile. Um, you do have an online presence. You're not starting from zero. Mm. Um, and, you know, you're able to exploit that and make the most of it. And that's exactly what people show. You've got to be realistic about who can I, how can I let people know about this book? Who can I get to support me? How do I get the word out? Because most people who self-publish books sell 30, 40, 50 copies and, and then that's it. They never sell any more because all their mates have bought it now. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's it is very easy to do, but it, it it's actually selling copies is hard. Yeah, and also something I think which is which is important not to forget is so you know when I came to you, I'd written I think I'd written three books. I'd written all three of the books, and then I sent I rewrote the first one, and then I had resubmitted it, and then I sent it to you. Mm. But also, and I've heard you say this, and it's so true, and it's it's a it's a sad fact, but it's a true fact. When you write the end, and you've written that first, um, and you know, to, you know, how many people say you want to write a book, and then you actually do it? And like, I was exactly the same. I wrote the end, and I was like, "Yay, this is it! I'm an author now, and I'm going to get published." And mm. you know, that's me on that Sunday Times bestseller. Of course, it is. But mm. not only, and of course, I'm going to get an agent. But as you know when you write your first 100,000 words or 80,000 words, it's just, would you say how, I mean, it's not even a quarter ready, is it? Would you say? No, I mean, it's very rare for an author to get to the end of a first draft and have something that's close to being ready. Yeah. Um, most authors require lots of rewrites and lots of editing to get to a point and even established authors. Yeah. You know, I, I was on a train journey with the award-winning author, John McGregor once, and we were chatting away and he, he said that actually, 
his, several of his early drafts are meaningless to anyone else. They just, I can't, I can't even share them with people because they mm. just don't make any sense. It's the editing process for him that turns his words into something that's a meaningful book. Everyone's different. I think um, often what's the case, and I'd argue maybe sometimes the case with, um, with perhaps with you with your first book, is that you're so wrapped up in the book and you're like, I've done it, that actually you, you, what you need is some distance to work out, well, what's actually wrong with it? Before I have finished it, yeah. but I need to know what's wrong with it. And I need distance and sometimes a second opinion to work out what's wrong with it or other aspects of it that don't quite work. Um, because you're not expected to get it right first time. You know, you don't take a driving test without ever had, having driving lessons. Mm. You know, you don't run a marathon without, well, at least unless you're an idiot, you don't run a marathon until you've done some training, a bunch of training runs. So, so for me, the first draft is a training. All right, I'm, okay, so I've told the story. There is a version of the story that exists. It's probably not the best version I can do. So now I'm going to go back through and I'm going to try and do a better version and then a better version, you know, and you, gradu you, you gradually do it. Um, for some people, it's three or four drafts. For some people, it's 20 drafts. You never know. And some people, it's two thirds of my book are great. And I'm just going to have to work and work and work on this other bit, which I can't quite get right yet. Mm. everybody's different but yeah it's very very rare for someone to to be anywhere close to being ready mm. when they type the end but a lot of the work i get sent to edit that's clearly what people have done i tend to send them away and go come back in six months yeah i know you do and and also it's like how i found it so going through the three books with you and and you know i do feel like that first time i got 14 pages of what's wrong with it i mean you always and the page count for you is is such I, a thing well, it is I, it is i like I'm, i do you know i'm i've got to have ambition in life scott so then yeah, the next no, time true, true. i think it was um to get down to about eight and then yep. last time was five. And I even got this is a great scene. But the, yep. the whole point is, joking aside, and now this book that I'm doing, my fourth one, I feel is is different. Um, but what I would, what the whole point of it is, is rather than keep sending those books off to agents and those first couple of drafts and not getting anywhere, I've le I'd like to think I've learned from you. So I look at these books and everything I'm doing now, almost it's like an apprenticeship. So that even with the self-publishing, that you're learning about marketing. And mm. so it's just all, you just have to keep going, I think, don't you, to find, and eventually they'll find where they should be and maybe I'll you know I know self-published authors who are doing so well but again it's mm. the same thing is they've just got better and better at being better authors and better marketers it's the same as anything isn't it, you, it it's a long time to get to the levels of somebody like Marianne Keyes say oh yeah absolutely and she'll have had a lot of she'll be the first to admit that she's had lots of help on the way and her editors have helped her and she's you know she's she's she'll have made mistakes um, she's a great, you know, if, if, if your listeners don't follow her on social media, she's a wonderful person to follow on social media and really supportive of fellow writers as well. So, yeah, it's 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 about learning the craft, which sounds a bit poncy, but, you know, it is, it's about, you know, your fifth book is probably going to be better than your first book because you've written so many books by then. Yeah. Um, also, just just accepting that, um, you know, you become a better writer by writing more. And it may not be that your first manuscript ever sees the light of day. But that doesn't mean it's a failure. It doesn't mean it hasn't worked. That first manuscript is what means you can write your fifth manuscript. Mm. You, can't, you can't get to the point where you are without um, having done those things. Now, you know, maybe your first manuscript does get published and that's absolutely wonderful. But for an awful lot of writers, it's their third, fourth or fifth manuscript mm. that actually is the one that works, the one that gets published. Um, and although that can be a little bit, oh God, that's quite soul destroying. I've got to, what, I've got to spend the next six years writing books. Before I, but it just depends. Everyone's different. And also timing and luck plays a really big part of it. Your first book may be great, but it just doesn't catch. 
Mm. You don't find an agent, you don't find a publisher, you self-publish it, it does okay, but nothing special. Um, because it just doesn't, you know, that so much of it is, is like, I mean, we've all got writers we love that aren't huge sellers. We've all got, you know, musicians, we, oh, have you heard this album by this person? I don't know why it wasn't huge. But a lot of it is just luck and timing and, you know, yeah. a song being used in a particular place at a particular time, you know, or my favorite restaurant has closed down. Why didn't, why didn't loads of people go to this restaurant? I don't understand. Well, again, you know, it's, there's all sorts of reasons. They're not necessarily the quality of, of the product. But so then on that note, so for you to go on the other side, so um, for this this book, Literary Cats, you have got a publisher. So what's that like for you? Did you get feedback? Did you get some, did you get, tell me you've got 14 pages of what's wrong with it? <laughs> oh God, you're going to hate me now. Oh, you got one, didn't you? Um, so None. so actually interesting. So this book is published by the Bodleian Library, which is Oxford University's library um, and the printing, the, 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 the publishing arm of them. Amazing. They actually approached us. They saw Judith and I do an event. And they said, oh, there might be a book in this. And so we've done this, you know, celebration of cats in literature. We, they asked us to sub submit a sample chapter uh, and a proposal. And they didn't really like us. So they said, we're not convinced by this sample chapter. Can you go away and do a different one? Um, they, we, we want more critical analysis. We want a little bit more commentary in it. And I think we probably just chose the wrong type of chapter to send. So we did another chapter and sent it. Like, okay, yeah, no, this works. This is great um and then they told us to go away and write the book so i think when we submitted the book we had one round of notes but they were fairly i think we had a page of notes but you know it's it's a book about cats in literature i mean it's, there's not a plot so the notes aren't going to be you know why have you gone for this because that doesn't make sense or why is this character doing this or i didn't believe that it's so it was more a case of um can we have a little bit more on this topic uh, we think this chapter could be a bit longer so it was it was it was that sort of stuff and we did we addressed that and then it just came back with a couple of margin notes and then we were basically done. Um, but they have been quite hands-off publisher. You know, they've not been particularly interventionist, but, you know. That is a bit uh, brutal though. Not only did the publisher come to you for the book, but then yeah, you didn't sorry, get, I mean, to be honest with you, Scott, you and I could have a little falling out, but it's okay. We'll come back. We'll come back. But you didn't, try and, you didn't try and set it in a week like I did with my first book and things like that. So you did have the knowledge, I suppose. Yeah, and because it's a particular topic, I mean, you know, what, how can you go wrong? You know, if we're writing about cats in literature and we've researched it, what is it that we can do wrong? It would just be the writing start, you know, it's, you know, or they go, hang on, why have you done three chapters on this particular cat? But we, you know, we, we, we planned it well and they knew what we were doing. We gave them a chapter plan. These are what the chapters are going to be. The only deviation from that is we went, we came back to them and said, there are so many cats in science fiction. We want to do a science fiction chapter and they went fine. Brilliant. How fascinating. Did you enjoy doing it? Yeah, I enjoyed the reading and the research uh, and I put together an interesting, it was nice co-writing. I didn't know how good that would be, but mm. Judith was a delight to work with. So we enjoyed that. Yeah, it was good fun. And we'll see. I mean, it only, it's only been out like a, a month uh, or just coming up for a month. And, and if it's going to work, it's going to work at Christmas. So we need to wait and see how it works. But yeah. Uh, I think it's really, I would just say as well, what I think is amazing is how like, look, look, you're writing a book about cats there, but all the different books that you look at. And it's like when I send you my women's fiction books and wrote a bit of romance or I was saying mm. like if there's a little kissing scene, I think, oh God, I could send this to Scott. But you're really good because you're, you're just so, you can adapt to any kind of book. And I, I think that's fascinating. It's very kind of you to say so. I mean, basically it's about storytelling, isn't it? Mm. You can, you can, you can have, you know, uh, as much kissing as you want in your books I'm, I'll be fine with that as long as it makes sense yeah. as long as I believe the characters would actually kiss yeah and my job as an editor is to go this is a lovely scene 
I just didn't believe that this character fell in love with that character. And, and here's how you could address that. Yeah. Not that that's specific feedback I've given you, but that's the sort of feedback you would give on that sort of scene. Do yeah. I believe it? Is it, is it written in a way that will, that will, you know, make readers interested or excited or, you know, cheer with joy that the kiss has finally happened yeah yeah well we all like and we all like that part of the book but so with all that knowledge has that so how did it come about because i am dying to know you <laughs> how you writing some of the questions on mastermind okay so brief because i know we haven't got loads of time left so briefly tw twitter is basically how this happened so several years ago maybe five or six years ago maybe a bit more i saw the scottish book council or scottish book trust tweet to say the production company behind 15 to 1, the Channel 4 Quiz Show, are looking for no, new question setters, no experience necessary. Email this address. All right. I emailed the address. The address, I said, look, I've written, because I, I wrote some sort of non-fiction trivia books some years ago. And I said, look, I've, I'm an author. I've written a few books about, you know, sort of trivial subjects. I have no experience of question writing. I don't do pub quizzes, but I heard about this. And they came back and said, no, that sounds great. Unfortunately, the deadline is today. So we need 10 questions from you by 5 p.m. today, and here are our guidelines. So was, all right, I went away, did the 10 questions, sent them. A couple of weeks later, they came back and said, we, we quite like these questions. Would you like to come in and have a chat with the team? So they're based in Islington. I popped in. They put me in a room with a pile of books and said, you've got an hour. Can you write us five questions, please, from these books? Then they did, I did a general knowledge quiz, and I chatted with a couple of people, my lovely Paula and Simon, uh, and then a couple of weeks later, they offered me the job. Yeah. Um, so I started writing questions for 15 to 1. They were incredibly patient, um, you know, because the first 20, 30 questions I wrote just weren't usable for various reasons. And they told me why. And it's so incredible. And so there's a whole bunch of us working on that. And then that show stopped after. I think I wrote for two or three years for that show. Then that stopped. Then Paula and Simon ended up at another show called Impossible. And they recommended me for that. And then I think three years ago, they um, became the question producers for Mastermind. Mastermind um, is now produced by Hattrick Productions. It had previously been a BBC in-house production. And they said, Scott, we'd love you to do it. So, um, so that's how I got it. It was basically through one tweet. I did some work on some other things. I obviously get on quite well with the question producers. I, I, I think I probably write quite well to a brief because writing questions is a very specific thing. And now, you know, for six months of the year, every now and again, I get a little list of subjects that are available and I can pitch for certain subjects and I write the specialist subject questions. So I think this year in this series, I've written maybe 15, 16 of the rounds for specialist yeah. subjects. And in previous series, it's sometimes it's a bit more, sometimes it's a bit less. It just depends because obviously sometimes the subjects are things you're interested in. Sometimes you're really not qualified to write them. Uh, and sometimes, you know, they're a bit stuck. We can't find someone to write for this subject. Are you prepared to do the research? So, so yeah. It's That's point. amazing. And what's been your favourite? I mean, like, it's hard to say, but what would you, or even of recent times, your favourite specialist subject? Okay, so this is interesting. So obviously I can't mention any subjects that have yet to be broadcast. You work not. in television, you know how this works. I do. However, we have, so I'm a big fan of the sitcom Detectorists. Mm. And earlier in this season, um, so it's now been broadcast. My questions on Detectorists were broadcast. I really enjoyed doing that. I'm also a big fan of the Studio Ghibli animation studio, Japanese animation studio. And I got to watch all, get paid to watch all of those. <laughs> so that was great. Um, but yeah, so I've written on sources. I mean, I wrote, um, I researched the life and work of Taylor Swift. <laughs> and the subject was broadcast on her birthday. 
and the BBC actually did a tweet that was the, they actually tweeted the entire round before it was broadcast because it was Taylor Swift's birthday. I had hundreds of Taylor Swift fans emailing me, uh, tweeting me saying, you know, where can I see this? I want to be able to answer the questions. So yeah, so I really like, when, when it's something you really love, that's a really, you know, so Ghibli and, and Detectorists and a few of the subjects like that, I've really, really enjoyed doing. But sometimes it's just, I did the history of anesthesia. Wow. And that was a fascinating subject. Yeah. So yeah, it's great fun. And sometimes you explore things you never thought you'd be involved in. And sometimes you're revisiting things that you love. Um, but it's, it's interesting. And there's a really interesting writing skill because writing a question for a TV quiz show is unlike anything else. There's mm. a certain way you have to word it. You have to think about length. You also have to think about just how it will sound out loud because it's a spoken question. And you also have to give the contestant a decent chance. Mm. No trick questions. You need to you know, word it in a way so that they know what it is they're being asked to, to provide. So yeah, it's good fun. I love doing it and hopefully I'll, I'll carry on doing it because it's just a nice, I've, I, I mean, I, I've, I'm currently working on three different subjects over the next two or three weeks. I can't tell you what they are. Of course are. you can't. Um, but, I want to know though, we all want to know. But they're very interesting. And I've got, you know, like I said, like another 12 or so that will come up. In, and the thing is, the really interesting thing is, A, I don't know which questions from my set will get asked because obviously you write more than they need. I don't know what order they'll be broadcast in. And I don't know how the contestant does or who the contestant is, even with the celebrity rounds. Mm. I don't know until it's broadcast. I literally don't know. So sometimes, you know, so Ellie Taylor, who's in Strictly at the moment, she answered my questions on Jerry Halliwell. <laughs> that was, and I had no idea who the person was while I was writing it. Uh, I mean, Roger Black, the Olympian, did questions on the Princess Bride. What? Did you? Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. And the, the best one, because someone actually tweeted about this. So there was a tweet. Um, oh, what's his name? What's the name of the comedian? James Acaster had chosen the history of ice cream. <laughs> and there was a tweet when it was broadcast, which is like um, con something like condolences to the researcher who spent ages writing, researching and writing questions about the history of ice cream, a subject which James Acaster did no research work for whatsoever. <laughs> It was quite funny because he turned up and I don't think he'd read the source material or whatever. He just didn't know the answers to almost anything. Oh um, so that's quite fun. So, yeah. And occasionally, like after broadcast, sometimes I'll tweet and say, well done, celebrity, blah, blah, blah. And so sometimes you have a nice little interaction with celebrities that you've dealt with and sometimes with the contestants. But of course, the reason I don't know is sort of, you know, security. I can't, I can't know who's answering the questions while I'm researching them or writing them. That would be completely unfair. Yeah. So I have no idea until broadcast who's doing the subjects or whether my sub so a couple of weeks ago i had two subjects out of the four and the next two weeks there's nothing of mine broadcast I, I just i have no idea until it appears on the tv listings but the pressure on you to make sure you got the right answer as well that you haven't made a mistake of any kind oh no that's good i mean you know all the questions are verified the, the production crew know know how this all works and you know i'm an old hand at this the, the key is there can only be one answer yeah yeah that's the thing. You can't do something where there are, oh, there's two possible. There's got to be one answer. And you do it by, by just doing your research. And so if I'm doing, you know, so I did like the fiction of Franz Kafka, for example. So, you know, you can say in this story, what color is the coat worn by this character? Well, that, that's like, the, if you read the story, there's only one coat. There's only one color mentioned. There is only one possible answer. So sometimes it's, it's, it's relatively easy. But quite often you have a wonderful, wonderful idea for a question. 
and then when you check it, oh, there are po two possible oh. answers, and then that become you can't do it. There's loads of great questions, but you just can't. You can't really. Yeah, I know. You, I know you don't drink, but you'd be like brilliant in a pub quiz. Well, I'm available for hire. Yeah. So um, you know, you if someone wants to chuck well. me some money, then, yeah. Uh, you know, a nice soft drink and some bar food, I'd probably be prepared to do that. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I can't. I, I'm not a fan of pubs. So that's the main issue there. Yeah, it's um, good, but yeah, my fr my friends and neighbours who do do pub quizzes are actually quite well behaved and never uh, and don't generally ask me. But maybe that's just because they don't want me there. That's maybe because you just will know all the answers and put them to shame. Um, but the but the things you do genuinely forget. Yeah. Like once you've researched a subject, by the time it's broadcast, I've often forgotten half the answers. So in your to be continued section, you're not going to say you want to write a you know an, a biography about Taylor Swift. No, she was fascinating. I've written some questions. That'll do me. To be continued, what would you like to do next? I mean, the honest answer is as little as humanly possible. <laughs> I think, you know, I've got lots of books that need to be read. So I'm hoping I can just balance my, you know, work-life balance will work nicely in that I, you know, I'll get time to read stuff for pleasure and watch movies and travel and do that sort of stuff. Um, I really enjoy doing the mastermind work. Editing pays the bills. So I'm really, but I'm very lucky that I can pick and choose what I do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of the privilege I have, you know, I'm a white middle-class middle-aged cis male. I have nothing against me. You know, everything is easy for me. I don't have any great um, issues or barriers in between me and what I want to do. Um, so I'm very fortunate. And so, so yeah, I'll, you know, I'll carry on editing. And I can pick and choose the editing I do. If someone comes to me with an edit and I'm not keen, I don't have to do it. So that's quite nice. Mm, mm. Um, so yeah, I'll carry on editing. Um, you know, there's authors like, yeah, I love working with you. There's a, an author called Queef McDonald. I think mm. I'm, I'm about to work on, maybe it's our 10th book together. Mm. And he's done amazingly well. He's, I mean, he's a wonderful example of a self-published author who has sold lots of copies by writing bloody good books, but he's mm. also got a traditional deal as well, which came to him after he did very well with his very good books. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'll just carry on doing that. Um, you know, a bit more writing, a few other writing projects to work on. Um, we'll just see what happens. But but just, you know, just not work very hard is my main aim. Mm. Well, you say that you have worked really hard, but also how lovely to speak to somebody who is just so happy with what they're doing. I think that's, it's such a rare thing. And it always comes across when we have our conversations, but it's just, uh, yeah, I think it's rare to find someone who's so happy with their lot. So thank you, Scott. You're an example. That's quite, that's quite all right. But yeah, when you are happy with your lot, I think you do have to recognise the privilege that's got you there. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and you, you love your cake as well. You, you eat some good cake. I like to have my cake and eat it. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So acknowledgements. Who would you like to thank who have helped you along the way? No one. I did it all by myself. Yeah. And there's no one I want to thank, really. Oh, it's all the usual stuff. You know, family and friends have been really supportive and stuff. I mean, to be honest, I, I thank my parents for just, you know, everything they did to make sure that um, their children had better opportunities than they did and that, that, that they could be supported. And also um, the, the authors that I've worked with over the years, because, you know, most books I've published have not sold millions. And most books published don't sell loads. Um, so, you know, authors putting their faith in me to publish them or edit them, I'm always very grateful for. Um, so it's, you know, it's a whole big team thing, really. Um, so everyone who's ever been involved in anything I do, I'm very grateful for. Uh, and I'm also very grateful that they tend to leave me alone as well. So that's quite nice. 
<laughs> they keep pestering you. I keep pestering you. But for you, so for the final section, tips and advice. Now, first of all, let's just keep with the books just for a moment because I do mm. know that people who write listen to this as well. So somebody who is going into the, um, well, you know, someone like me. So somebody who is going into the publishing world, who's writing books, who wants to write books, but it, it feels overwhelmed and daunted because like you say, I mean, it is a tough industry, but there are ways and different ways and, you know, people do love reading books what would be your advice to somebody who's going who's starting out now in the pub with books what would be it they don't know whether to do self-publishing publishing agents whatever what would be your advice to them and also to them if they're thinking do you know what i'm just going to give up because it just seems so overwhelming so the biggest the piece of advice i would give everyone is always just do your research and that accounts for everything so if you're writing romantic comedies read loads of romantic comedies but read them with a critical eye you're not reading them for pleasure you're reading them for research what is it about this story that i like how is it structured is it a three-act structure generally speaking a romantic comedy will start out with a setup here is my character and here's why you should care about them then somewhere that character is going to get into trouble and something's going to go wrong and that may be something wrong with a relationship or life but something's going to go wrong and at the end it's a rom-com that she or he have got to get together with their significant other you know it's got to end with something you know some sort of relationship ending um but what you know do all rom-coms work that way which or which successful authors subvert that system and how have they subvert? so you know so from that level you research the area you're writing in that's the same if you're writing historical fiction or biography or what you just re read good examples of the genre and work out why they're good examples of the genre um so that's that level of research then you research the industry you know the reason i wrote tips from a publisher was like look here's everything you need to know about how the book world works it's like a quarter of the book you read that you'll understand how it works but you don't have to read my book to do it you can read online articles or whatever so you understand research the industry also research what agents are looking for and which agents represent which sort of books because a, a mistake a lot of writers make is they send their book to someone who doesn't represent that sort of book do your research um also research what's selling look at the sunday times bestseller list look at your local bookshop what's at the front of the shop understand your market because this is the key thing and it's something i talk about in the book as well is that if you are going to be successful as a writer that's a new job it's a new career for you and you wouldn't go for a job interview without researching the job and the role and the people you're going to work for. You don't just turn up at, I don't know, an interview for Waitrose without ever having been in a Waitrose shop. You'd be an idiot. Yeah. You'd have an opinion. You know? So research the industry, research the agent you want to send stuff to, research the small publisher you're going to send. So you research, 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 and it's understanding how everything works, how your genre works. And the other bit of advice is also just think about what it is you want to achieve. So if you, so there's nothing wrong with writing and publishing as a hobby. And I don't mean that in any detrimental way. Yeah. So if you play golf, you may not be ever capable of becoming a golf professional, but you could still have a really good handicap and you could still actually win local tournaments and you could still actually have a wonderful time as a golfer and you will have spent quite a lot of money on your hobby. Yeah. Mm. If you like knitting, you may not become a professional knitter who sells, you know, a thousand pounds worth of knitted goods a, a, a month on Amazon, on, on Etsy, 
but you could still be a really good knitter and you know make a little bit of money out of it or whatever um and the same with writing it's fine for writing to be a hobby that's a constructive hobby and a hobby you spend some money on it's absolutely fine to spend money on your hobbies and that you get pleasure from it and you also may get a bit of income from it you don't have to be a full-on professional published traditionally to make it work. It, this can be a side hustle. This can be a hobby. This can be something you do when you're not doing other things. And I think that's, it's fine. You don't have to be in the Sunday Times bestseller chart to be an author that people love, that people enjoy reading. Um, if you want to aim for that, that's great. But yeah, so do your research. And, and it, but it's research everything, you know, about the work you're about to do. And also just be realistic about what you're trying to achieve. What, how much time can you put into it? Mm. Um, maybe it will just be, you know what, I'm going to write a historical novel once every couple of years and I'm going to self-publish it and I'm slowly going to build up a readership. And if in five or six years time I've got 10,000 readers, I'm delighted. Isn't that great? Mm. Or it might be, I really, really want to be a full-time writer and I'm only going to do that if I go to the traditional route that's also great mm. as long as you understand what you're doing mm. and presumably you've seen so many different authors that if they've got to a point they've all been through most most of them have been through some kind of a struggle or mm. you know been told like you said like Queeve and that that you know this isn't great and then he goes back and does it again but the key is don't you know don't give up but also you know just yeah just keep learning and keep keep going with yeah. it as well isn't it because you've yeah and there's, al there's always that how do i know if actually i'm rubbish yeah if, am i getting rejected because i'm just no good or am i getting rejected just because it's not right for this person or whatever and i think that's always hard to do and that's sometimes if you've got the budget that's when you can go to a professional and say look could you read this and just tell me where i'm going wrong um so so yeah it's 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 understanding what your limitations are in terms of your experience of the, I don't know anything about the industry so yeah so don't just charge in as if you do learn about it you know learn about what you're doing and and, and the industry you're working in I think that will help you out a lot mm. and just very very finally then as somebody who's gone from what record shops to your working in the Soho um, as a receptionist to books to publishing to mastermind questions 15 to 1 on the way what would you say to somebody who is listening to this and is like do you know what look I'm listening to Scott and he's done so many different things and I'm still doing the same thing and I really as a job and I really am not enjoying myself and I need to I love the sound and look he's very happy with his lot and I want to be like that and I I don't know what I want to do but I know I want to do something else what would you say to that person okay so I'm going to go into dad mode now if that was one of my children speaking to me I'd say, just check your safety net. Yeah. So think about what it is you want to do and what restrictions there may be. And these days, of course, you know, we've got a cost of living crisis. It would be very hard to change career if you didn't have some sort of backup. So there's that side of it. But I, I would always say, and there's a wonderful David Bowie clip where he says he, you know, he thinks everyone produces their best work when they're just slightly out of their depth. Yeah, if you're not a little bit scared, you're unlikely to be massively creative. Um, you don't go totally out of your depth, but also you don't want to play it safe. So yeah, if you're a there's nothing wrong with being scared and um, safe and comfortable isn't massively creative. You know, you're unlikely to write your best work when everything's absolutely fine. You're probably going to write your best work when you've got a deadline looming or you're feeling a bit uncomfortable about something or, you know, you're going to you're going to write you know you're going to write your best love song when you've just split up with your partner you know that that sort of stuff that that that's fine so it doesn't from on one side just have 
think about what your safety net is. You know, what's, what's your day job? What, what, is there something you can go back to? You know, can you leave what you're doing and go and try something else? And if it doesn't work, and, but sometimes you just have to go sod it. I'm just going to do it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I'll work something else out. Depends on your level of responsibilities, but um, being uncomfortable is good. It's a good thing. You, if, if you're only going to make a, uh, the leap, if it's incredibly safe, then fine but it's unlikely to be particularly interesting or exciting so yeah don't be don't be afraid of being afraid um but also i'm a dad so it's like you know have a safety net if you can <laughs> well that that is amazing advice now i know when i feel uncomfortable when those pages come back see i'm going to take it i'm going to say look scott with his dad mode on this is what we should all be doing i could talk to you all day about books taylor swift kate uh, thank you so much scott pack for being such an amazing guest on the next chapter thank you for asking me so there you are. What did you think of that? I learned so much from that about the publishing industry. I hope you found it interesting too. And I love that. There's nothing wrong with being scared. I remember that the next time I'm waiting for Scott's book report. So to find out more about Scott Pack and his latest book, Literary Cats, you can find him on Twitter and also the links are in the show notes. To keep up to date with me and my work, and I'd love, love to hear from you, you can find me at elliebarkerwrites.com. If you could rate and review this episode and even subscribe, well, that would make my day and may just help someone with their next chapter. I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, remember, there's nothing wrong with being scared. I think you can do it. And Scott does too. Speak soon.